Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Our guest today is John Hewitt. John is a PhD student working at Stanford University. In this episode, we will be discussing an interesting method John recently published on probing word embeddings for syntax. The paper is titled A Structural Probe for Finding Syntax in Word Representations. It's co-authored with Chris Manning. It will be presented at NACL 2019 in Minneapolis. John, welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you for welcoming me. Happy to be here. So over the past few months, we've seen how contextualized word representations for trained on language modeling, such as ELMO and BERT, improved the performance on a variety of NLP tasks. And the remarkable effectiveness of these representations inspired several NLP researchers to understand what linguistic phenomena are implicitly being learned in these models. In the paper we're discussing today, it falls in this line of work, and we would like to dig a little deeper. So, Joe, could you tell us what hypothesis you're trying to test in this probe, and how does it differ from some of the previous hypotheses tested in other probes? Yeah, absolutely. So, I think we were inspired by recent work showing that deep language model-like neural networks learn something about syntax and learn a lot of syntactic information. And so the hypothesis that we wanted to test is that entire parse trees so in our case, dependency parse trees, but entire parse trees are really learned implicitly through the language modeling objective. And we wanted to test a very specific hypothesis about how that information would be encoded by the unsupervised learner. Right. So how, how is that different from the previous, maybe probably simpler tasks that have been tried in the literature before? Yeah, great question. So I, I think that there's been a lot of good work on defining tasks that look for specific types of information, of syntactic information, as well as tasks that, say, do like uh, CCG super tagging, which give you a statement about, you know, you can you can do this labeling task, and to do the labeling task well, you need information about, about the syntax. And so the way that we wanted to kind of progress this research direction is to say all of this kind of syntactic information writ large is interesting. But there is also this, let's say, more macro distinction where maybe 10 years ago, it would have been more plausible to say, I want to add dependency parse trees to my NLP model to make all the numbers better. Because dependency parse trees have all this information and they disambiguate things and they're great. And nowadays, you still see some of that, but you know, definitely less. And, and the gains are kind of modest. And so one hypothesis is that this information is actually being built, like this tree structure is kind of being built softly by the unsupervised learner itself. And so these probing papers that look for these labeling tasks just don't test the same hypothesis. You know, is the actual kind of hierarchical structure being built implicitly kind of in its entirety by the unsupervised learner in really like a global fashion? And when we get more into the details, we'll talk about what that means. So that's a broad distinction. Like there's a difference between syntactic information, which people have been looking a lot into, and our question of, you know, are these tree hierarchies kind of latently, softly built internally into the representations? And maybe that's why, you know, it's not as necessary to add them kind of in a hard manner on top. So just to clarify, I know there has been previous work on taking a constituency parse tree and getting a probing task to see if I can recover the path from the root to the terminal for every word in a sentence, right? For instance, the cat ate food, then what you would predict with your probing task for cat would be something like um, sentence, noun phrase, noun or something like this, right? So you're essentially recovering complete syntax information of like what, how this word 
participates in the syntax of the sentence. Is this separate from the probing tasks that would ask like what the parent and the grandparent and the great-grandparent were all as separate tasks? So I, I may be wrong a little bit on the details. If your tree is shallow, these are essentially equivalent, and you're right that if the tree is very deep, these aren't. And I guess this is also similar to CCG super tagging, right? But what you're saying is, yes, people have looked at this kind of syntax information previously, just not in a globally coherent way? Is is that the distinction you're making? It's almost the distinction I'm making, because people have also done full constituency parsing through a probe on top of a fixed representation before as well. And then in that case, clearly you're getting the whole constituency tree out. You know, the distinction there with our work is that we want to make kind of a very specific hypothesis about how the information is encoded by the model, in particular, a really simple kind of unlikely one. Predicting all of the grandparent and great-grandparent labels, I think, kind of falls more on the side of, yeah, you have a lot of information about what labels are where, and also these tasks, I think, tended to be, you know, you would come up with like a balanced data set, for example, can you predict whether like this is the right label or not, which is not quite the same as actually reconstructing the tree in the wild. And then when there were tasks that reconstructed the tree, my understanding is that the probe kind of model on top was a bit more complex. And I think that we had something to add with kind of the simplicity of the probe parameterization and kind of the claims that we get to make about the space that the model learns. And, and hopefully that'll be useful on top of the already very good probing work that existed before our paper. Great. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, so we entice the listeners enough, I think, about uh, this probe. Could you tell us, like, what, how, could, how do you actually do that? Of course, I would be happy to. A really nice way to think about it is when you look at representing graphs here at large, well, we have this kind of nice question where we want to know if this graph of a dependency parse on every sentence kind of exists latently in the hidden states that the network uh, constructs. And, but you can have representations of individual nodes in each graph. So if you take a vector for one node in a graph and you take an L2 distance between that vector for one node and a vector for another node, you can come up with this representation where if their distance equals the number of edges between the two nodes in the graph, then you can kind of reconstruct all the information of the graph from this notion. And so in dependency parse type sense, right, whenever you have two words in a governance relation, they're going to be at distance one. And that's kind of, you know, that's, that's headedness. That's kind of a salient thing that people think about a lot. But what if they're distance, you know, what if they're two edges away? Um, then they're distance two. If they're three edges away, they're distance three. And so it's really hard, of course, to ask if this discrete structure, a graph, exists in the continuous vector space that the model constructs. And the connection that we're going to make to make this a lot easier is in this concept of a distance metric. By distance metric, we really mean something very precise, right? So it has a triangle inequality. We're going to have to relax that. We'll see. But it has a triangle inequality. It's got non-negativity. It's symmetric. And what we first claim is that the tree itself can be represented, that each dependency parse tree can be represented by a distance metric, where every pair of words has the distance of the number of edges between the two words in, in, the, in the tree. And then the vector space also has a distance metric. And that's how we're going to connect these two ideas. That's what our structural probe leverages, right? So even though one is continuous and one is discrete, they both have distance metrics. And that's what the probe kind of looks for. We're going to ask if we can find a parameterized distance metric on the vector space, uh, a single one that matches all distance metrics on every single tree, on every single sentence really, really well, hopefully. This is actually pretty, pretty simple in terms of implementation. Because if you just take like Euclidean distance, L2 distance, you can easily parameterize it with any positive, definite, in our case, a positive semi-definite matrix. 
So you have these this kind of square matrix in the middle, a single matrix that defines which dimensions matter more, which dimensions matter less to this distance metric. As it's a probe, you have this kind of supervised notion where we're going to use parse trees to try to find, in this case, the matrix in the middle, or equivalently find the right distance metric that kind of reconstructs all the parse tree distances uh, over the course of the whole uh, parse corpus and as best as possible. This distance metric that you define, you say, like for any dependency parse tree, I can I can talk about distances between nodes between them. But if, if all I do is recover the distances, I don't actually recover the tree, right? Um, you recover the tree up to the um, the edge directions. So you don't get the edge directions out. Or edge labels. Ah, uh, yes. No, we completely, uh, and this is something that, that you could definitely, if you noted our paper about, we don't even mention edge labels anywhere in the paper, which are very important in some sense. But in another, asking the structural question, I think, was kind of the contribution there. And I think that asking the labeling question actually kind of is just a, a labeling question, which we've done before. And so hope, hopefully someone will do that, but we haven't. <laughs> yeah, great. So great, great point. Great point. So how do you learn this, the parameters of the probe? What's your objective? Yeah, so you can think of them as this positive semi-definite matrix. You can also think of just like taking each individual word representation and putting it through a linear transformation. It ends up in a new space now, right? And so you linearly transform every you know word representation in every sentence and then you take their squared L2 distance uh, between all pairs of hidden vectors. My sentence is, you know, the chef who ran to the store was out of food. You take the vector for chef, and you take the, the vector for was. You take the squared L2 distance, and that's going to be some, some value. And their actual distance in the, in the parse tree is 1. And all we do is define a loss that's just the L1 loss on the residual of, of the difference. So it's just saying... You know, I want these two to be very close. We're going to use L1 loss because, um, I don't know, honestly, it's, it's somewhat arbitrary. People could try other losses if they wanted to. This one seemed to work and has the intuition that maybe some edges are not going to predict very well at all. And we're just going to, going to let them be kind of far off. We don't want a squared loss where we get really penalized for, for, for huge mistakes. Yeah, so for every pair of words in every sentence in the training corpus, we take the predicted distance under our probe with this kind of parameterization of this matrix in the middle. Uh, and we take the difference between that predicted distance and the true tree distance, and we just diff them and uh, and backprop the loss. And, and so in terms of deep learning, it's actually probably the least interesting, you know, <laughs> uh, model to come out at, at uh, NACL this year. But uh, I think that's part of the, the beauty of it, hopefully. So you take all the pairs of words in the same sentence and, and apply this uh, loss for it. I wonder if you have tried also other things like try to optimize the model better so that the longer distances tend to give you larger values without necessarily matching exactly the norm on the, on the, on the tree. Yeah, it's a great point. And it actually brings up a whole kind of potential family of ways to make the parsing numbers better when doing these methods. So one thing that you know I tried briefly, for example, is to have a distortion loss instead of the L1 loss. So this means that you... You know, after taking this this difference between the predicted and the true distances, you then divide by the true distance, right? To kind of give the intuition that, like, if I have this error on this like twenty length 
dependency path. I don't really care that it's 20 length. That's just, I just care that it's kind of far and I'm just going to downweight that. But like, I really want the things that are distance one to be distance one. Uh, and you know, the numbers get better, right? But for the sake of this geometric argument that we want to make, we just decided not to do it for this paper. We thought it made the analysis and kind of the claims a bit stronger. Yeah. I mean, the, the intuition of the work is pretty, uh, I think it's very elegant. What, you, what you're trying to do is like very simple. You have uh, a metric defined on the tree, a metric defined on the vector space, uh, find a way to optimize a simple normal linear transformation on the vector space so that they match. So what kind of representations have you actually tried to use this for? Uh, well, first, thank, thank you. I appreciate, uh, and I appreciate the evaluation. And so, so the, the, the hypotheses that we present in the paper, we developed when working with Elmo in particular, which, and, and you know, all the, all the layers of Elmo. And so it's this, you know, uh, bidirectional LSTM and and actually only only later did we without changing these hypotheses at all then apply them also to the hidden representations that, that Bert constructs because one argument could be that this hypothesis is kind of architecture specific and that like you know some other metric or some it just only is some bizarre result of like the dynamics of LSTMs for example that maybe build up incremental state in a way that like attention based models don't do and based on the fact that the Bert numbers are kind of you know, better in the same kind of way that maybe BERT downstream numbers are better than Elmo downstream numbers. We were pretty happy with how the hypothesis held up on the BERT representations. But those are really the only two that we've done any extensive testing on. I think that testing these on, on one directional, actual, you know, real quote unquote language models would be a great next step, for example. You also uh, use some baselines. I, th I think it's important to talk about the baselines because it's not like you can throw any arbitrary vector representation for the words and like st structure will come out of it if you optimize this transformation enough. Yeah, that, so that's, that's a really good point. And it's important in probing papers, right, that you can get some really nice looking numbers using probes. And, you know, what do those numbers mean is something that I think the whole community needs to keep thinking more and more about. And so as baselines, right, we wanted a couple of actually pretty strong behaviors for our baselines. The first is that if you actually take uncontextualized word representations, you want to not be able to parse at all from them. Just because you know you can train a parser on top of a linear sequence of uncontextualized word representations does not mean that the uncontextualized word representations themselves actually, quote unquote, you know, learned to parse. And so it's a nice result that if you try to apply our structural probe on, you know, just like the, the character CNNs, of Elmo with the parse distance task, you really just don't get trees out at all. In fact, what you see qualitatively is that most words just connect right to the root, which makes some sense. We also have a couple of baseline contextualization methods. So we will say, you know, what if you have some information about your local context, but clearly there's no information in the model that's building that contextualization to actually parse. So we take this kind of weighted average of the whole sentence that's focused on the, on the word that you care about, or we'll take a kind of a random projections, a BioLSTM with untrained weights, which has been shown to be a really strong baseline. So we don't want to be able to get parses out of those two either. And I'd say to a pretty good extent, you're really not able to get a whole lot of information out of them. Most of what you get out of both of these baselines is kind of deviations from this quote unquote linear hypothesis. So like a, you know, a syntactic kind of null hypothesis in English is that you just kind of have the linear sequence of words from left to right, and that's all the latent structure there is. And that's not quite what we get out of the probes on the baselines. You do get some kind of fitting to some local nonlinearities, but um, we were pretty happy that you couldn't get much more than that out of them. I guess thinking about your Elmo CNN, you said you can't get like any structure out, which obviously is, is understandable. 
The numbers aren't zero, though. <laughs> you said you said it's mostly connecting to the root. I wonder, like, clearly you should be able to say determiners attached to nouns. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And if you combine that with a simple linear assumption, like it give positional information plus a character embedding, you should be able to get at least local stuff right. D does this make sense? Totally makes sense. So I think that if you took some combination of linear information plus uncontextualized representations, you'd be able to get some reasonable numbers. But if you look at the numbers for the what we call proj zero or the random bias LSTM on, on the linear projections, um, maybe an uncharitable but reasonable way of, of looking at that is actually the numbers are pretty good, right? So like I said, you know, a minute ago that they were bad, and I actually do believe that. But if you wanted to say they were good, you could, and I wouldn't be able to say, no, absolutely not, they're terrible. Like, they're, they're not they're not awful. And, and if you look at the examples that we present, where we present kind of a, a parse tree for each model for a single sentence, you actually see exactly what you're saying, I think. So I expect if we had some ad hoc combination of the character CNNs and linearity, we'd get something like that. But admittedly, it's a baseline we didn't run. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's totally fine. I'm just trying to unpack the baseline results a little bit. So this, what you call proj zero, I, the name confused me at first, but it's just like learning learning a contextualizer, right? On the, the task-specific data. Oh, no, the, the BIOSTM contextualizer is random weights, completely untrained. We just trained the structural probe on top of that. I didn't realize that at all. I, I read the whole paper and thought you were fine-tuning that contextualizer. Okay. No, I expect we could do very well if we did that. Like that, that would be a really interesting additional baseline, right? Where I'm seeing how much is the pre-training giving me versus what I could have done just with this task-specific data. So does this make sense? I kind of disagree because you have so much capacity in a BIOSTM. Like, if you have a BIOSTM plus you know, biaffine layer, for example, on top of uncontextual word embeddings, you get kind of epsilon from state of the art, right? And so a BIOSTM plus, you know, distance metric, it's actually kind of like a biaffine layer with, with different assumptions. And so as opposed to a baseline, I'd actually consider that an oracle. An oracle on, but you're doing it on held out data. Yeah. So like, I don't expect that our structural probes could possibly do better than if you also trained a you know, BIOSTM just for because like in, in when we're doing our structural probes work, right, we don't fine tune the, the Elmo bias TM. Now, if you were to fine tune the Elmo bias TM and the structural probe on top, then I'd say that's a reasonable comparison. But you get so much out of having this bias TM layer that you're training with the supervision of the parsing that you just can't get out of this one little, you know, positive semi-definite matrix that you're using on everything else. I'm just not quite sure what what the comparison would tell us. I think the numbers would be very good. Yeah, that, that's totally fair. I guess I was trying to get at a different question there than, than your paper is trying to answer. And this is like, how much syntax do you learn from pre-training? Like compared to like what you could do um, with like a state-of-the-art kind of parser. Yeah, I think that what is potentially extractable in total from the model is also a great question, which I think also other probing papers have done a lot, have done a really good job of, of asking. It's like, if you just try your hardest to get all of the syntax information out of Elmo, and what could you do? And how does that compare to just taking the character CNNs and putting them to a bio STM? I mean, a, a great recent example is, you know, Tenny et al. at, at iClear 2019, uh, which has this, uh, I think that's the right one, um, uh, which has a great comparison of kind of how can we get some really good information out of these models, as well as uh, Nelson Liu's uh, NACL paper. So everyone should read those two, too. They ask very different questions. Right. So we didn't really talk about the evaluation. How do you 
evaluate what after you optimize the parameters of your probe, what numbers do you report? Yes, so this is a great question, and I would love pushback from the community on this. Maybe people shouldn't request pushback. I'll tell you what we did, and then you know why it makes some sense, and why why maybe there can be. Uh, more more work there. So what we didn't want to do is report some kind of like average error, right, on on the distance prediction. And so if you look at this truly as a distance recreation task, and you say that I want to recreate this distance metric because the distance metric has all the information in the undirected tree, then really the scalar numbers of the distances don't matter. What matters is that words that are far are far and words that are close are close. And the Spearman correlation kind of exactly operationalizes this intuition that you want close things close and far things far. And if you have this perfect notion of close things close and far things far, then you actually perfectly reconstruct the tree, even if all of the individual scalar distances aren't exactly the same. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So we have this, this metric where we take sentences of a, of a range of lengths and we compute kind of the average Spearman correlation for each word in each sentence to say, are the words that are supposed to be far farther than the words that are supposed to be close? And so that's kind of this, you can call it, you know, it's this metric that hasn't shown up in other places, but is useful for thinking about how well are the distance metrics recreating the true distance metrics. And to make things a little bit more concrete and interpretable, we wanted to actually pull a tree out of the distance metric somehow. And here's where the decisions become somewhat arbitrary, right? If you take the goal distance metric and you take the minimum spanning tree on it, you just get the true tree back really easily because you connect all of the words that are distance one in your minimum spanning tree, and then you have a tree, and you don't even look at any of the other distances, right? So you have like n squared distances, and you you're constructing your minimum spanning tree using you know some first year you know algos course prims algorithm or something, and and as soon as you're done walking through all of the pairs of words that are distance one, you have a connected tree, and you're done. Uh, and so if you really did a good job constructing the tree, you could just do the same thing. You could take a minimum spanning tree and get a tree out. So that's what we do. So on the predicted distance metrics, we take a minimum spanning tree, and we just call that the tree that the distance metric predicted. Now, another thing you could do, for example, is define an integer linear program that assigned word connections while kind of minimally violating all pairs of distances in all n squared relationships according to the predicted distance metric. So you definitely could do that and it just seemed like it, this one worked well enough and other people can try that if they want. So yeah, that's that's how we do it. Um, so so once you have the, the, the true tree and the uh, predicted tree, we compute this analog of the unlabeled attachment score, which we call the undirected unlabeled attachment score, because yeah, we, we, we care kind of about the, the connections between words for this task, not so much the ordering of them. So it's just because we have a guaranteed n minus one edges in the tree, it's just, you know, the percent of edges that were correct. Another thing, though, in evaluation that I should bring up is that this, this, this idea that like the distance metric doesn't actually reconstruct the tree edge directions. So the dependency parses are rooted trees. They're rooted at the root of the sentence. And there are directions to the edges in the governance relations. And we have pretty much exactly the same probe to try to reconstruct the edge directions as we do to reconstruct the actual tree itself. So if you would like to hear more about that, I can talk more about it. Otherwise, people can read the paper. So I'll, I'll leave it up to you, to you guys. Well, I think it's an important addition. If you want to reconstruct the actual tree, we need a way to do this and to find the directionality. So could you, yeah, could you just tell us how does this relate to the tree norm? What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, of course. And so, so tree norm actually itself is, or like this tree depth notion, we call, you know, the number of, of edges in the dependency parse tree between the root and the word that you care about. So the depth of the root is zero, 
and the depth of you know any word is the the path length between that word and the root. Similar notions have been used in in other papers. So like the, the, what you can cram into a single vector paper, right? Define the, the the maximum tree depth of a sentence and see and saw if you know encoding models could classify what bucket of maximum tree depth things ended up in. There's another paper at NACL this year that takes a more neurosciencey take on probing and tries to determine if you can classify again kind of how many open constituents there are for any given word. But right, so the way that we connect this to our setup is to say if the trees are defined by a distance metric, then the edge directions themselves, like it's a nice kind of directed tree, like a dependency tree. Any rooted tree is a nice kind of directed tree. All the ed edges go in a reasonable directions, you know, directed, you know, it's acyclic anyway, but the edge directions are defined in some sense by this total order, which is the depth in the tree. So if you have two words that are connected by an edge, the word that is deeper in the tree is going to have the edge coming in towards it. And what constructs a nice total order on a vector space? Well, any norm constructs a total order on a vector space, and you can order all vectors in the vector space by the scalar value of the norm. And so if there is, you know, a corresponding notion of distance in a tree means you know, Euclidean distance in some sense in the vector space, then maybe the norm of the vector in some space actually corresponds to this tree depth norm. And so we actually use exactly the same structural probe setup to try to predict for every word in every sentence this scalar regression type depth in the tree. And again, we just try to find the inner product under which these tree depths are reconstructed best. So we it's like a quadratic form in each individual word representation you can kind of think of it as the structural probe itself defines a whole bunch of vectors that kind of describe what distance, what kind of depth in the tree means. And each word representation is kind of compared to each of these vectors. And that's how you get this nice scalar ranking. And so uh, from an evaluation point of view, right, independently for every word in every sentence, there's this depth prediction. So you put each word representation through a norm, through, sorry, through the same norm, and then you get this independent scalar prediction. And then we compare here again, the Spearman correlation, are the deep things deep and the shallow things shallow? That's what we call the norm Spearman in our table one. And then we kind of have this other kind of loose metric for intuition's sake, which we call the root percent, which is, you know, what for what percent of sentences is the root word predicted to be the least deep, just to give people kind of this more interpretable but less cohesive intuition for how well these models are doing, uh, because you really should have the root near the top of the tree. Right, so I was really excited about the structure prob because it gives us a way of actually constructing the full tree minus the labels. And I was a little disappointed that the paper didn't report results on just like unlabeled attachment score with the directionality. So I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on like why, why, why not? <laughs> that is a great point, and I'm glad you brought it up. We did not in part because each of these two phenomena are interesting by themselves, the fact that you're able to find these two. And I think that to try to evaluate them both, you could do some smart things about maybe defining a single norm for a single inner product, for example, that gets you both all of the parse depths and all the parse distances, or you could predict them both separately and then just define the undirected tree and then put all the edge directions on them. I mean, I think that the honest truth is that with the amount of time and resources I had, naive ways of doing that would just probably underestimate the quality of the individual predictions themselves, or like would, would look a lot worse, to be totally honest, in the individual predictions themselves um, without a little bit more engineering. So like, for example, when you're trying to define the edge directions, once you already have the, sorry, the undirected edges, right, you could just pick the tree up by the root 
right, with the root prediction thing and then have all the edges fall out. Or you could, on a pairwise level, predict for every pair of words, which or for every, you know, word pair of words in an edge relationship, which one is higher, which one is lower. Or you do some combination. I don't know. They all seem plausible. They're all kind of consistent with the method. As it was a short paper, we kind of decided like, yep, that's that's going to be good and someone's going to do it and it's not going to be us. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Uh, that's fair. We need, yeah, we need to keep publishing. And... All right. So what I'm hearing is you don't know the results of such an experiment yet because you haven't done it. I, I actually do not. Yes, I do. Okay, not. cool. You mentioned some of the results, but I wonder if there are like any specific results you wanted to highlight. Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing is that I'm really happy that none of our reviewers said, wow, these parsing results are nowhere near state of the art. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, strong rejects. Parsers are better than this. Uh, because the numbers really are just not what we expect from, from supervised parsing. And I, I'm glad that the community seems to be okay with that. But looking at some of the, so like there, there are two results in the distance met in the distance probe that I would point people at. One is the actual kind of minimum spanning tree tree reconstructions. Some in the paper that are pretty interesting, where you see this nice nested structure appearing, and some long distance dependencies, and a lot of things wrong, also obviously, but kind of non-linearity where you would like to see it, and then a lot of mistakes happen kind of in deciding attachments that you may or may not believe in. Obviously, there are also mistakes happening in maybe more important things as well, but you know the, the extent to which this simple minimum spanning tree and all these predicted, kind of independently predicted distance metrics, uh, I mean, sorry, distance uh, values reconstructs the tree, I think we were pretty surprised by but then I also want to point people at, in the paper, it's figure nine, what we call these distance matrices, the actual all n squared pairs of distances, which show you kind of this, this really nice notion of global structure. And I think that's one of the things we get out of our probe that you wouldn't get if you were just probing for, for example, headedness. So a totally reasonable thing to do would be to have, you know, a, a bilinear probe that tried to predict whether a pair of words was headed or not, or was in a headedness relationship or not. And actually, our reviewers really rightfully pointed out that this would be a pretty reasonable thing to do. And it's actually a lot easier of a task to predict zero one headedness compared to like know that you are thirteen edges away from this other word somewhere in the in the sentence. But what you end up seeing is that there's this makes a claim about this this global structure. So words tend to actually know that they're far from kind of far away constituents, even though kind of the headedness relationships don't immediately tell you that. And this means this information is kind of like directly available for every pair of, of word representations. Like you don't need to first construct the tree out of the hidden representations and then kind of know what's close and what's far. Every pair of vectors has some information about how close and how far they are. So these are these predicted parse distance versus gold uh, parse distance matrices. I think those are pretty fun and something you wouldn't have gotten out of other probes. In terms of the parse depth, the root percent prediction accuracy is relatively good. And the, the graphs that we have, I really hope that people do some interesting um, analyses of, of where these models agree and differ. It seems maybe at a cursory glance that Elmo, for example, seems to like to kind of increment and, get, and decrement parse depth in more of a, a, of a choppy way than BERT, which you could kind of hand wave a whole bunch and say something, something recurrent, something, something hidden state dynamics whereas attention is kind of doing this oft kind of notion. I don't know, it has, it has these nice kind of potential qualitative things that could bring up interesting thoughts in your head. 
And I hope that that's one of the things people take away from this is like, you have some numbers, the numbers are kind of good enough to say that, yeah, there's clearly some kind of parse trees somewhere if you look in this way. Um, but also it might give people ways to keep looking in more interesting ways into what decisions these models are making. That's really interesting. I, I have a couple of maybe controversial questions. The first one is, could you use this to, say, evaluate theories of syntax? D just to be clear on what I mean, what you've shown is that, that models that are estimated based off of some huge pile of text trying to predict the next word or fill in missing words recover something that's very close to our notion of syntax. And you could say, uh, at, w without, without getting any syntax at all, and you, you, you could imagine or, or hypothesize that this is an alternative way of discovering syntactic theory or something like this. Like, certainly you want to be, be careful that this is definitely a controversial kind of thing, but like, could, could we someday use these kinds of models to evaluate syntactic theories? I think that I have an anecdote that hopefully will, will express what I believe about that statement. Is that, so if you try to find linear structure in these models, right, just like the linear chain graph, use a structural probe to try to find the linear chain graph. We had some really early experiments where we just like tried that first. And actually, it turns out you do a pretty good job of reconstructing the linear chain graph because Bert and Elmo are both just given the linear chain. Now, we only tried this on on some other models. Wait, ju just to be clear, you mean that if that that's essentially the the, the vectors are encoding positional information? Yeah, Is yeah. That that's what you're saying? Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. And so we tried this, for example, for like a, a simple one directional LSTM that was not trained on a whole lot of data. And yeah, there's you can kind of like you don't predict the exact scalar values very well, but you get kind of the rough, like if you take the Spearman correlation, it's pretty good. And that's in some sense because it's a really easy task and the information is explicitly given to both models, like to, to these models. And so if you were to try to use this as a representation of syntactic theory, you'd be like, look, you know, it does best at predicting linear chains. <laughs> so clearly linearity is what is what human syntax is. And that's just not, the, not what we want to take out of that. So I would be very cautious in making that kind of claim because you could just like you know so so one one example that's been brought up is like you could train on stanford dependencies and and then evaluate on universal dependencies or the other way around or see which one which of the two formalisms which are just you know sl slightly different in certain ways uh is better captured by these models but you know is one is one easier than the other for the model like there's there's so many confounding factors and something that I think is not spoken of enough yet, but hopefully will be, is this also is this idea that like the probes can pick up on things that are maybe not, I don't know, not every single point of accuracy that the probe picks up on is like indicative of some like clear information that the model has constructed. And you can see that because you get these non-zero accuracies on the baselines, for example. And so I'd just be worried if we saw a three or four point difference between our two syntactic theories of like stating what that meant writ large and angering a bunch of linguists, which is something I try to avoid doing. <laughs> <laughs> good. Yeah, yeah. That, that, I think that's a good answer to, to the question, and, and I agree with you. And one important point here is that this probe is not unsupervised. It's not. Right? You're, you're not. You're not recovering trees in a totally unsupervised way. You're supervising the probe, and so you're, you're saying, how well can I recover this particular syntactic theory from the representations that I learned, which actually isn't making any statement at all about what underlying structure the model is actually using in some sense, right? It's just saying, it is the stuff that it has in there similar or recoverable uh, 
to to this representation that I'm injecting. I agree. So it, it says, you know, is the information necessary for reconstructing these distances present in this linearly decodable way globally, kind of in all sentences and in all word representations? But if the quote unquote true oracle syntactic representation of BERT can be linearly transformed into one of our theories that we're trying to pull out of it, we have no way of knowing, right? Because we have this linear transformation that we are supervising. One thing that I think is actually a potential boon to people who want to analyze these things is taking really low-rank approximations or really low-rank linear transformations for the probe, where you go from this thousand-dimensional ELMO or, or, or BERT space down into, say, 30 or 60 dimensions. So in our paper, we show that Linear transformation really only needs to, to send you to like a 60-dimensional space, looking at kind of what each of the rows actually of this matrix say. And so, you know, I've tried to look at these to some extent. And, and, and so saying like, oh, look, you know, this row might actually correspond to this syntactic distinction that said that puts all the words on one side of the noun subject on one side and then all the words on the other side of the noun subject on the other side. That's not a statement I can back up, but it's something that I thought, oh, that would be cool. And, you know, kind of looked at that and said, looked at the data a little bit and said, well, maybe, <laughs> right? And so like, there's definitely insights I think you can get, but I would say it stops short of being able to evaluate syntactic theory. Yeah, fair enough. My second, perhaps controversial question. You've shown pretty conclusively that we can recover or, or that uh, Elmo and Bert, these pre-trained representations, learn some notion of syntax. What does this say about the relevance of what we used to call core NLP for future NLP systems? Like, do we still need to worry about these tasks at all? What do you think? Oh, I think that's a great question. So I think that what I like about this work is this this whole kind of dichotomy of like, do we need more data? And just we have these kind of structuralist models that are trained off of a lot of data? Or do we like throw core NLP at it? And we get our dependency parses and we get a bunch of, of rich features. Then we put them in, in some kind of feature combination, right? One thing that is clear to me, though I need to quantify it, is that these emergent properties of syntax really appear when you have the world's data, when you have so much data. So it seems like, and, and I'm hoping to be able to evaluate this sometime sooner in the future, if you have not the internet of data, then these emergent properties of syntax just really don't happen. And I think a, a hot take of this paper, right, is that it's actually a claim that syntax is important because stochastic gradient descent, if given enough data and enough uh, expressivity, uh, actually finds some notion of syntax. Again, that's a hot take. It's not backed up by the paper, right? But like the fact that you find this structure in BERT kind of says that like it'll find some notion of it if it's given enough capacity. And so when you don't have this much data, when you don't have this much compute, when you don't have this much expressivity, it's really like almost every domain and language and task on earth. If you ask me, if there's about 7,000 languages on Earth, and you know, we don't have core NLP for all those languages, but I think that there's this there's this notion in which hard syntactic structures actually defining the whole dependency parse and, and saying like ah, throw the dependency parse at it. I can't say what the future for that will be, but I do think that it's reasonable that like we might be able to encourage these emergent properties that show up in these like huge data models to actually show up when we have less data using our structured models, right? So like, what if you wanted the L2 kind of distance, tree distance hypothesis to hold when you only had, you know, a reasonable amount of data and not a BERT amount of data? Because it seems to help BERT maybe, or BERT you know, somehow constructs it for some reason. So why don't we encourage that to happen 
when when it wouldn't happen naturally. I think that's an interesting thing that I hope that I or probably other people will will end up exploring too. Yeah, great. That's a great answer. Thanks. So this has been a very interesting conversation. Did we miss anything that you wanted to talk about about this work? Yeah, I think the last thing I want to say is that the code for running this is hopefully easy enough to run such that people can actually just pipe sentences they're interested into some pre-trained probes. And the code that I have on GitHub will, will run BERT for you and then run the probe for you and then just like print out this exactly the same graphs that I have in the paper for whatever sentence you want to work with. And so I hope that it will kind of pique people's interest in just saying like, what if I send, you know, some kind of garden path sentence at it? What happens? Like there's, so, there's so many great fine-grained analyses that I hope people run that I really just can't personally run. And I hope that people will both take the code that, I, that I've written and, and also take the paper and say like, what are all the hypotheses we can test? We can test other languages. People have already started to test other languages, actually, independent of me. You know, we can we can uh, test where the errors are being made. We can test whether, you know, I have this uh, this toy example in the blog post where I have the subject verb number agreement example, where I just keep adding kind of relative clauses between chef and store uh, or was when like the chef who ran to the store was out of food and I just keep adding clauses in the middle between the subject and the verb. And for some reason, it seems like, you know, the arc between chef and, and was vaguely might kind of still line up even with a lot of things in the middle. And that's like, oh, please, you know, like that's something similar to like the, you know, assign higher probability to the correct number conjugation of the verb work that we saw that we've been seeing for the last couple of years. And like, is it a scientific statement? Absolutely not. But it was kind of cool. And I hope people run those kinds of analyses and see what um, more quantitative things they would like to run in the future. Absolutely. The visualizations in, in this work are very interesting and uh, fun to play with. Reminder that this uh, paper will be presented in NACL in a couple of months. John just told me that it's going to be an oral presentation. So yeah, you're welcome to go. And thank you for joining us today, John. It was fun. Thank you too. Thanks for having me.